You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled God's Wrath. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to the program today. Recently I came across some statistics that will probably interest you. Surveys were conducted in the Netherlands, England and Canada regarding church attendance. In each case there was a clear trend. It's this. In liberal churches attendance is in decline. What this means is that churches where the Bible is not held in high esteem, people are ceasing to attend, whereas in more conservative churches, attendance is relatively stable or growing. Put in another way, churches that disregard the Bible or where the people are taught that only parts of the Bible are relevant are in decline. That means that where the book, the Bible, is regarded as the basic textbook, and if that's disregarded, those churches are declining in numbers. So, what are the main teachings where Bible truth is normally being put aside? Well, it includes creationism, the worldwide flood, the virgin birth, the permanency of the Ten Commandments, the death and resurrection of Christ, the eternal punishment of the wicked, the physical second coming of Christ, and the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. These are a few of the teachings of the Bible that have been replaced or ignored um, by various speakers. Some of the influences that have led to non-acceptance of the Bible teachings have been firstly the widespread acceptance of the evolution theory, the desire to be free from all restraints, the influence of non-Christian teachers in schools and universities, the popularisation of same-sex marriage and the LGBTQI movement, and an overall secularization of society. If you set aside the textbook, which is the basis for religion, then of course anything goes. I suspect that in churches where the Bible is not held in high regard, people are not committed to it or the truths that it teaches. It would be interesting to know how many people take their Bibles to church. I suspect that only a minority does that. In my case, I always take my Bible to church. And if I'm not familiar with a text or interpretation that the preacher gives, I check it up for myself. And I believe it is important to do that because there must be some sort of measure or primary source information Otherwise, there's no way of knowing whether what you hear from the front of the church is truth or not. Just to illustrate the point, 
I recently had some communication with a man who claimed that the Lord had told him certain things, so therefore he was a prophet. Was there any way of testing whether he was a prophet or not? Or, on the other hand, should I have believed him simply because he said so? Do you see the point here? Was there any reference point that gives guidelines as to whether someone is a prophet of the Lord or not? There are several, but I believe true prophets must be in harmony with the Scriptures, both in the message presented and in their lifestyle. Here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 8 verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In the case of the man who claimed to be a prophet, he said things that were against what the Bible teaches. I felt, therefore, that he was not a prophet of God and probably said what he said independent of God or perhaps was led to say what he said by another spirit. In those churches that teach stuff that is not sourced or supported by the Bible, is just like that so-called prophet, who made claims about himself and expected people to believe him simply on the basis that he said it. There is another influence why these liberal churches are in decline, and that is that they do not recognise their life practices or their beliefs have any accountability. The reasoning goes something like this. God is love. Therefore God will not hurt or destroy anyone, whether they are righteous or sinful. Therefore you can do what you like because God loves you regardless. So today... I want to show you that God's love may have a different aspect, and hence the title of today's talk, God's Wrath. There are quite a few Bible verses that speak about God's wrath, and in, the ca in, in case you are not familiar with that word, wrath means extreme anger. But isn't anger sin? No. Anger is not sin. Uncontrolled anger can lead to sin, but anger itself is not sin. Anger is like a knife. There is nothing wrong with a knife, but if it's used uncontrollably, it can harm. Jesus, in driving out the money changers and merchants sell selling sacrificial animals and birds in the temple courtyard, at Jerusalem, was angry, but he did not sin. Although God is indeed love, and everything God does is from a motive of love, he can be and is displeased when people do wrong, when they know to do right. And here's one verse. It's from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God 
comes upon the sons of disobedience. There is no shortage of feel-good preachers out there today, and they are deceiving many with empty words. These empty words are their messages. Some say there's no ultimate destruction, no wrath. They say God accepts all sin and condones human behaviour. But they are deceiving themselves and many others too. The wrath of God will be more fierce on those who teach such lies and omit from their pulpit messages the need for repentance, the necessity of forgiveness, the cross, living a holy life and obeying God. Most Christians are familiar with the Bible's most well-known text, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But less well-known is this verse, verse 20, uh, sorry, 20 verses further on, and that's John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, Jesus gives us two choices. There are only the saints and the ain'ts. Those who haven't made a decision really have made a decision to reject Christ. Those people sitting on the fence must understand that the fence, along with all unbelievers, will be cast into the lake of fire. Today, while you still can choose, choose to hear his voice, because today might be your last day of choosing Christ for eternity. Now consider Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Genesis chapter 18 and 19 tell the story about how the wrath of God was expressed during the time of the patriarch Abraham. One day the Lord came to visit Abraham and revealed to him what was going to happen to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 20 of chapter 18, the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done if it's as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Now, I don't know how Abraham came to know that the Lord intended wiping out these cities of iniquity, but Abraham bargained with the Lord. This is chapter 18 of Genesis, verses 23 to 26, and I'll read this. Abraham said, Will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? 
What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. But Abraham kept bargaining, and the Lord agreed not to destroy the city if there were forty-five righteous people, then forty, then thirty, then twenty, then ten. And in verse thirty-two it says. He, the Lord, answered, "For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it." Do you get some idea of the evil practiced in the city of Sodom? Sodom, if there were only ten righteous people to be found in it. In fact, there were only four, and they were Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, his wife, and two daughters. They were instructed to flee, because something terrible was about to happen. Now, what was it that caused God's anger with Sodom and Gomorrah? Have you ever heard of the word sodomy? That word is defined as anal intercourse. The word sodomy comes from what happened at Sodom. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed with sexual passion for each other. They were homosexuals, and the homosexual practices were so prevalent that the Lord had to do something about it. He was about to pour out His wrath, and I'll tell you what that was straight after the break.
So what did God do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? And how did he pour out his wrath? The answer is found in chapter 19, verses 24 and 25 of the book of Genesis. It says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities, and the entire plain, including those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. I've met an archaeologist who's done research in this area where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. It was once a fertile valley. He showed pictures of the devastation that occurred and the lumps of sulphur that are scattered around and found in the rubble. He also noted that this part of the Jordan Valley is still a veritable wasteland thousands of years later. Plants don't grow there, although it was once a fertile area. God's wrath was expressed in destruction. I believe what happened to those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be repeated in the future on a worldwide scale. Now, there are two things that need to be highlighted from what happened to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Firstly, the people and their cities were completely and utterly destroyed. I know the teachings about hell in various churches vary. The popular notion about hell is that it is a place of eternal torment where the wicked people are supposed to be partially burned forever and ever. People of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, but they were totally consumed by the fire. How do the ministers who teach that hell is a place of eternal torment deal with that? My friends, don't be deceived. The popular teaching about hell is a false doctrine. The destruction of the wicked will be total, complete and permanent. That will come at the end of the world before God makes all things new. There are many good reasons to show why hell will not be a place of eternal torment. I've dealt with this subject in some earlier programs and you can hear about this on the podcasts of Give Me the Bible. The effects of God's destruction of the wicked will be eternal. But the punishing will not be eternal. The second point that needs to be made about the destruction of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is about reckoning. If mankind is simply the product of some accidental happenings without any plan or cause, as is taught by evolution, then life is without purpose and is nobody's responsibility. Therefore, there is no good reason to conform to social norms. There is no good reason to do what is right. Whether one is good or bad is of no real consequence. You exist for a while, then die, and cease existing, so who cares? I believe that many people commit suicide 
because they think that they have no noble heritage, and that they are not responsible to anyone as the teaching of evolution maintains. But when one realises that he or she is being created by God, that's a whole different scenario. Since God has given us life, we are responsible to him for that life. In his word, the Bible, God has made it quite clear that it's our responsibility to make the best use of the lives that we have. We are to reflect the character of our Creator. And if we live according to the terms as laid out in the Bible, we can expect to have eternal life. But if we live according to our own whims and desires, then again, as explained in the Bible, we, like the Sodomites, can expect destruction. The attitude, ah, it's my own life, I can do what I want with it, is not true. The Bible explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you are bought with a price, therefore honour God in your body. We owe our very existence to God, therefore we are answerable to him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15 and verse 2, is a metaphorical statement made by Jesus about what we do with our lives. Jesus said, He, talking about God, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. In other words, when a person who does not honour God in their life, that person will be cut off and will perish never to live any more. God's wrath was also shown at the time of the worldwide flood. Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 to 7 explains how God felt in the past about human beings and what they did with the gift of life that God had given them. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. So, what happened? Apart from Noah and his family and the creatures that were in the ark, God destroyed what he had made. And that will be repeated. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. God's wrath because of man's wickedness at the time of the flood was expressed in destruction. God's wrath with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah 
was destruction. And God's wrath at the end of the world will be destruction. As Jesus explained in the two verses I just read, God will destroy the world and what he had made because of man's sinfulness. Man is accountable for what is done with the gift of life that has been given him. God will destroy all the wicked in the lake of fire, as is explained in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. But it's not all bad news. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 gives the good news. It says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. God never intended that we should be destroyed, but that we would live in harmony with him forever. But because of the entrance of sin into the world, his plan was interrupted. However, Jesus gave his sinless life as a substitute for ours so that if we're willing to accept his offer of salvation, God's plan can be realised, at least for those who are willing. There is one or two major choices to make for every and each individual who has ever lived or will ever live. We have to decide whether to accept Christ's sacrifice or reject it. Those who reject it will have to suffer God's wrath, which will be utter destruction. The choice is yours. I've made my choice to honour and serve the Lord. But what is your choice? Let me admonish you. Choose life, not destruction. So until next time then, this is Len signing off and wishing you the good life in Jesus' name.